Hello and happy spring. Leah Pika here. Today's guest is helping data analysts activate the power of their insights by building the best business dashboards. Stay tuned to find out who's ringing in the spring on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 74. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hey, listener. Welcome to the 74th episode of the Present Beyond Measure Show, the only podcast at the intersection of presentation data visualization, storytelling, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights and ideas. Spring 2022 is upon us, and I think that the world is finally beginning to breathe a collective sigh of relief and being able to venture out in the world again and connect. I believe that this is the year of transformation where we've mostly made it through the fire of these last two years and are now walking away, if nothing else, wiser about the ways we want to live our lives and what is most important, and also infinitely grateful for what we have. And of course, as usual, I'm excited for today's guest, but in particular, this one shows so much passion for how organizations can activate the usefulness of their data from a communication vehicle that is often more mysterious than useful, the business dashboard. Let's dive in. All right, welcome everyone. Today's guest is the data and digital analytics evangelist and senior partner at IIH Nordic. He is an international keynote speaker on all things data. He loves the potential of data activated the right way and how it can supercharge a business. And he specializes in activating data through machine learning and cloud to support specific commercial business objectives. He's spoken at events from Mumbai to Silicon Valley on digital analytics, data activation, and visualization for more than 10 years. And he's a regular speaker at the legendary Super Week. So to do that, you really have to know your stuff. So please help me welcome our latest guest, Steen Rasmussen. Hello. Hello, Leah. Thank you. Good to be here. I've really been looking forward to this. I enjoy your podcast a lot. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Happy to have you. I love featuring amazing industry experts who are just at the top of their game. So one thing that people always like to hear is not just about what you do today, but how you fell into this world. So what is your origin story when it comes to data? I think for me and my generation, I basically started in digital in 99. And the origin story is I happened to be at a place at a time. It wasn't really a career move. It was just an idea saying a friend of mine started a digital agency in Copenhagen and at that point, I was working as a copywriter. So my background is in corporate communication. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's a obvious choice to go into analytics. But I started as a copywriter. And you can't really say online copy without saying usability. So I became head of usability at the agency. So that was kind of my first foray into data. But because I had this commercial background, it was really, I can say, 
I was frustrated with doing usability because it was great that somebody was the ambassador for the users, but I really felt that nobody was the ambassador for the business. So sitting there and having this thing, I started more and more saying, this is all fine, but what is the business value of all these digital activities? And this is back in 2001. So everything was just branding. Somebody had seen their first car and everybody was opening gas stations, but the market wasn't that big, right? Mm -hmm. So I started moving into data basically to get deeper into that. And I started my first agency back in 2001. That was the year the bubble burst. So the only thing thing about starting an agency at that time was basically that rent was cheap. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't really the obvious choice, right? Because everybody else was slowly moving away from all the agencies were were retracting to themselves. Mm -hmm. But we thought it was a good idea to come out and tell a brand new story about the business value of online. And that was my first trip into it and where I started actively working with analytics and also where... During that phase, I met Henrik, who's my business partner at IH Nordic. And what we had in common was this idea saying that the data that we were gathering was not being utilized enough. Mm -hmm. So we were doing some really basic visualizations at the point, like you say, yeah, there was more 55 years old visiting the website than 25 years old, but it wasn't really telling a story. Mm -hmm. So the idea was saying, how can we tell a better story and recenter everything around business? So that was my journey into it. And that has continued on from there to really be more about the business than about the data. And this is where I feel very much at home these days. Mm. So really focusing on that objective at all times, not just numbers, but how they feed into what's ultimately trying to be accomplished, right? Yeah. yeah. So the idea is saying, this is trying to be bold. There is no such thing as a digital strategy. The digital strategy is how digital supports the overall strategy. And that's kind of the idea of digital, right? So it's not like we have the the business going in one direction and then digital running off in another direction on its own, like something completely independent. So it's a more holistic view the way if you went to an organ doctor, like let's say a gastrointestinal doctor, they're going to look at that one aspect Mm. and have a specific strategy for that one part of your body and treat it, ignoring the whole of the person. Whereas if you're into functional medicine, which is where I live, Mm. it's more looking at the entirety of the organism and how those systems interplay. So there's no digital strategy. It's a strategy that incorporates digital. Yeah, basically. So so digital is just a way to support the overall business. And I think this is where sometimes we get lost with data because we're so full of it. Right, so we have so much data. Yes, full of data, or <laughs> yeah, maybe both. But uh, this is a night show, so we'll try to right. keep, it, keep it clean. Uh, one of the things I've liked is saying I don't know how I got it, but like the idea of the metaphor of an elephant as a company. So, mm, so this yeah. is kind of the entire thing, right? And very often, as analysts, what we will do is because we don't really understand the entire elephant, and then we will focus on the and on the ass of the elephant. Yeah. And then this is such a tiny aspect in relation to this giant beast that it doesn't really right. help anything, but it looks good in a graph. Yeah, right. No, I, I think that's a great way to set the stage. So one of the tenets or pillars of this show is all around storytelling, right? So I love mm-hmm. stories. And you were interested in telling a story about your wife and a car and how that relates to a major challenge with data. So I'm really interested to hear this one. 
Cool. So, so it's one of my favorite stories. And it, it it's Thursday morning. One of my employees comes to the office and I'm standing outside and I tell them, hey, I have a problem. I need you to go to Aarhus. It's a town on the other side of Denmark. You can either go there by the bridge or by a ferry. You need to go there and pick up my wife. And because I have good people, they don't question why I suddenly ask them to drive my car, right? Okay. But they say yes, and they jump into the car. And at some point during the journey, they decide, hey, I better give Stain an update. Mm-hmm. And if they communicate their progress like we communicate the data, they will look at the data they have available. They will look at the dashboard and, and call me and say, hey, Stain, yeah, I have three quarters of a tank. The speedometer is do- I'm doing 90, and the radio is playing Coplay. Because that's the available data that they get in the face. So like when we log into Google Analytics and decide to give a status based on the data that is there, Mm -hmm. right? But for me, I have one KPI that is interesting. That's something that is not necessarily available in the car. It's the question saying, when will my wife be back? Right, right. So, So it has nothing to do with the operations of the car and how much gas is there. It's about the objective. And very often we tend to overtell the story and give way too much information from the driving car. And as a manager, where I need to get involved is, is so they arrive at Aarhus and then they call me saying, hey, Steen, listen, we took the ferry. We just missed it going back, right? So either I have to take the bridge and we'll be home at the same time, but it's going to cost the extra fee for the bridge. Or we have to wait an extra hour and your wife will be home an extra hour later but I will come back on budget. Mm-hmm. So this is where I need to be involved in the decision because it impacts my outcome. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Right, and all the other data in between, that's running the business, that's handling the assignment. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a tendency because some managers, they will actually say, hey, go to Aarhus and pick up my wife. And then they'll get in the car with you and sit next to you and watch the speedometer and all these numbers <laughs> and tell you to go faster and slower. And in reality... For me, that's bad management because that's my management. So if you don't trust me to drive your car, you can go and fetch your own wife. (laughs) I love analogies for this reason, especially when trying to explain complex or technical concepts. But, you know, it's amazing how easy I am grasping the point of what you're trying to say, which is we go into these platforms and we try to fit the available data to whatever objectives we have, mm-hmm. or we start with the available data and create objectives around that data, yeah. rather than really asking, how is this digital piece of our overall strategy going to be measured as successful or not successful? Mm-hmm. Right. And that goes back to the conversation about the, the digital strategy. Because mm-hmm. so when I talk to, to people, I say, Okay, so if you want, one of the things that I hear very often when I talk to analysts is saying, we don't get enough attention from management and management doesn't understand what we're doing and all this. And very often it's because we don't understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so, so if, we, if we go in and say, hey, listen, what is the strategy of the company this year? And what objectives do I need to fulfill? And then I go to my manager and say, okay, I'm going to do these three digital activities this year, and this one is going to support this overall part of the strategy, and this one is going to support this overall part of the strategy, and this one is going to support this one. I can't find anything that will support this last thing, but the other things I can support. Mm -hmm. And then I need the budget to do this, and I will inform you how my support is going. 
<laughs> but how often do we get to tell that story? Because we come and say, my objective this year is to reduce the bounce rate. Mm-hmm. And is that important <laughs> right. for, for the overall goal, right? Right. Because we're told that's important. Yeah. And we're not sure what else we're working with. And I mean, look, honestly, I remember in my days as an analyst, there were entire website experiences, apps, strategies developed around metrics that people felt were important and wanted to improve. Mm. Yeah. Right. Rather than understanding how is this going to extend, cultivate, renew our relationship with our customers mm. and looking for the metrics that support that. Yeah. And and when I tease people, I've said this on a stage in front of a, a, a huge crowd of analysts saying, so why did anybody hire you? Yeah. So why did anybody hire the analyst? The mm. answer is simple. They hired them because they thought they would be a better investment for the company than not hiring them. Right? Bingo. Wow. Boom. <laughs> are, we bringing, are we bringing that return into the business when, with the data that we're providing, mm-hmm. with the dashboards and stuff that we're building? Or are we just building magnificent castles of numbers? That is a really insightful question to ask ourselves as a data practitioner is, how am I making the investment in me worth that? Yeah versus, especially in the climate that we're currently in. Yeah. This is one reason why I love data presentation so much, because for me, communicating, being the explainer, communicator of data makes you a visible part of the informing process rather than Mm -hmm. just crunching numbers behind the scene. Yeah. And that is the way for me, especially that my stakeholders got to say, I get why we invested in her now. Mm -hmm. There's some value here. And I think it's a really good point because sometimes I see some analysts are more like magician hiding in a cloud of data. So when I tease them saying they have the safest job in the world because they can always pull out some numbers and hide behind that, nobody's going to fire the analyst because everybody wants to be data-driven. Yeah. I remember a couple of years back, I saw one of these, uh, you have these demotivators. So one of the, like Hmm. you have the motivational plaques, but this was a demotivator. So saying (laughs) Okay. The tallest blade of grass is the first to be cut by the lawnmower. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so kind of Say saying, more. don't stick your neck out and don't risk anything, hide behind the, the rest of the grass. And I feel some analyst, it's mm. if you don't know what you're going to say, then just play it safe. And in that sense, working with data can be the safest job because you can go to the monthly meeting, you can send the reports. Have you heard the story about that? I can't remember his name, but he was an analyst for Shell in London, I think, the oil company. Mm -hmm. And he sent a monthly report and he was kind of concerned that nobody was reading his report. So what he did was he wrote Beatle lyrics into his report. So (laughs) so just to see if anybody responding, this month's numbers are like Lucy in the sky with diamonds. It's like, and then the entire lyric of that song was embedded in the report. And And I think he said... It took six or seven months before anybody mentioned it to him. Wow. Yeah. That is instructive. Or scary. We're all both, right? Yeah. Wow. That is interesting. I mean, you have to look all along the communication chain to see where that breakdown Mm. is happening. Because when after a while, if stakeholders are accustomed to seeing a new report but they're pretty sure it's not going to ultimately answer the questions they're 
really asking and they may not even know what they're asking, but it's not yeah. feeding some objective to your point. They might have been conditioned to say, yes, yeah, probably nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think there's a major shift going on in data right now in the sense that what we see is basically we're reaching the point where data actually begins doing stuff on its own. So, mm-hmm. so a lot of the stuff that we're doing now where we're putting machine learning on the numbers is so you go to the site and that will put you, it changes the segment and when you, it will change your experience on the site and when you leave the site, you will have changed the follow-up in relation to your experience. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, and, and I've been doing analytics when you did a web trend report by passing print in the afternoon when you went home and the next morning <laughs> it made like a stack of paper. <laughs> Web and dare you wow. if you had made the wrong settings because then you just have to print the entire it all thing over. Oh, man. Yeah. But the challenge with the numbers now is that because they suddenly begin doing things on their own, suddenly it becomes important if they are right or not. Right? So so in the old days, yeah, if the numbers weren't right, it was kind of so so. My favorite wager I've been I've stopped doing it now because I think people have gone better. From stage, I've said, okay, cool, guys. If you let your me into your analytics and I can't find any flaws, I'll give you 200 bucks. <laughs> but if I find a flaw, you just have to give me 50 bucks, mm-hmm. 10 bucks in some cases, right? And how many people have taken that wager of the, I think I've offered a couple of thousand people, professional oh, wow. web analysts have gotten that proposal. And, and- how many have said yes? <laughs> Right. So where do they begin to look to find if their data has flaws? Like where's the starting point that analysts can look at that you see maybe tends to be problematic? I think I would flip it and I would say it's probably the other way around saying that what is holding us back as analysts is this trying to get the data perfect. So we Mm, have to accept that our data will never be perfect and, and decide on focusing on what can we do with the data we have? When is it good enough to do something? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise we get stuck in this rut where it's just about gathering data and refining it and, and not really making it do anything. But if there's a place I think that people have a tendency to overlook, it's on their campaign tracking. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody wants to do look at the campaign numbers, but it's a minority who really excel at campaign tracking. So they go in and they look at the standard out-of-the-box analytics setup and say, oh, cool. So we have good channels here and we need to do this. But it's like, <laughs> guys, it's not tracking the right way. You haven't set anything up, right? Yeah. That is the first place I, I look. So it's before the data is created, which I think that's maybe not common knowledge, maybe not as much as it should be, but always starting with how the data is getting created is a great mm. place, right? Yeah. And then actually, one of the places, one of the interesting things is also what we have a tendency not to look at. And it's actually, I will call you and say, I have a problem. My conversion rate is tanking. And you will be my hero. You'll come in and you'll dive into my data and you'll tell me that I need to optimize some pages because that is apparent in my data. That is my problem. And this is something we've learned the hard way, right? Saying, but In reality, the main factor to impact your conversion rate is what the competition is doing. So Mm -hmm. so it's actually all the things around you. We focus so much on our own bucket because we've been trained to look at our analytics data. Mm -hmm. But the reason why I'm not selling enough Nike shoes this week 
it's because my competitor is running a super sale on the same shoes. Yeah. Right? And then you call me and say, help me. My sales are tanking. It's like, it's a business problem. It's not a site problem. So right. just lean back, save the money, do something else, piggyback on their campaign. Right. But don't stress and don't optimize anything. Right. And I mean, look, there are for sure cases I've ran across where it was a site problem. But I think to your point, yeah. people run to that as the only explanation versus expanding their worldview and seeing what else is going on in the market, which is very important. So you talk a lot about this phrase, data activation. I would Mm. love to learn more about what that means to you. So we did a case for a customer, and I think it's easier to tell that way around. Sure. It was a series of publishing websites, and they wanted to get more out of their activities. So, mm-hmm. so we gathered all the data, cleaned it up, put it in BigQuery, used machine learning to predict whether visitors to the site were going to buy or not. So basically going in and using the data to decide what bracket were you in. Mm-hmm. And then at the bottom, you had the bottom 20% saying they were never going to buy. So remove them from the marketing. And in the top saying, these are the top 5%. Mm-hmm. Let's not give them abandoned basket discounts because they have actually already purchased. They just don't know it yet. So by removing them, we're not losing money and then focus the marketing budget in between on the segments in relations to where they are and and their likelihood to purchase. And then feeding that automatically to the marketing platforms. So the segments actually got the right offers or the likelihood of the right offers. I think Part of the solution for them was they could actually save 90% of their internal on-site advertising campaign for their own products and still increase sales. Mm. And this was kind of a co-orchestration and there was no people with fingers on it that need to do anything. And for me, that is data activation. That is data doing stuff on its own. Mm -hmm. Then we get other worries, right? Two most important visualizations for them is, is sales maintaining the right level? And do we have any deviations in the data? Because suddenly data quality becomes really important because if something is wrong with the data, then it will start doing crazy things. So we need to monitor the data quality because we let data be an agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So activating the data sounds like it's taking out aggregate approaches to everything and these marketing, I don't know, archetype isn't the right word. There's a word that's escaping me, but like saying like, well, when you increase your advertising, you increase your sales and Mm -hmm. you're kind of busting through those very ingrained patterns by really looking at the behavior of different segments and Mm -hmm. applying, but also testing and monitoring that the data is still being truthful. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's one of the ways, right? So so another example is where we took an e-commerce site, a multinational e-commerce site, and and actually did cluster analysis on the users. It was kind of a rebellion against personas, saying, <laughs> okay, personas is kind of, we think that this is how it is, but can we do data build personas? Mm-hmm. So with the data build personas, instead of going in and redefining, then we look at what have the different user groups in common. And in this site, they went from having a lot of national verticals and a lot of personas 
into having these groupings saying, okay, this guy in Finland, he acts like this lady in Germany, and they have something in common with these two guys in Belgium. So clustering them and supporting their behavior on the site, instead of just trying to force them into the buckets we have set. And then we actually get, by adding the automation, we get these micro movements of some very homogenous groups. Mm -hmm. So this is where we nerd out, right? Yeah, of course. So rather than subjectively coming up with persona characteristics, like, well, Mm -hmm. I think we have a customer who's like Jane and Jane likes yoga and has two kids and she's looking to build her own business. Like, which knowing your customer really well, you can often do that, but you're actually going against allowing demographics or even psychographics from mm. dictating your personas, but rather letting more like behavioral exactly behavior yeah. to determine that, even though they might not share what are thought of as common characteristics like gender and age and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And it ties kind of back to the the story about the publishing house, because what we built there was kind of a, to do this segmentation, we built a, a prediction engine. Oh, and what we find with some of the signals in this prediction engine was actually tied a lot to your online behavior, much more than your demographics. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of backend data and the backend historical data of where they were and what their hobby was and what they did for a living and everything these things were much weaker signals than their actual behavior on site. So mm-hmm. what you're doing right now when you go on a website tells a lot more about where your interest lies or what you intend to do than what I will know about you by buying all the data I can buy about your address and your background and, and all this stuff. I see. Oh, very, so, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So you get these micro signals, right? So, so. Mm-hmm. The behavior, and by having the ability to group people based on these patterns, then you can actually test a lot and nudge a lot and support. So instead of trying to take your small customers and make them major customers, you can just make them buy a little more. Mm-hmm. And then you've actually, on the bigger scale, one. All right. I want to switch gears a little bit to dashboards. I'm having many more conversations about dashboards on the show recently. And... You've already mentioned them several times, so obviously this is your wheelhouse. What do you think are some of the reasons dashboards don't get used or the ways that they are failing their purpose? I think if I look back at what I've done over time, saying the most successful dashboards I've made have been focusing on this, making it actionable. Of course, yeah. I have to be able to change something based on on what I see in the dashboard. Very often, we have a tendency to either put in too much or aggregate data too much. My favorite thing is saying, there's this joke in SAO saying the best place to hide a dead body is on page two of Google. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, the best place to hide a dead body in analytics is in an average. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, because once you break it down, there can be so much shifting going on. So breaking down the averages and actually trying to not accept an average number because it's an aggregate and it will be hiding what is actually going on. Yeah. I wonder if it's like a midpoint where if you're really in tune with your dashboard, you're familiar, you feel like it's an old friend, you know it well, and you see a big enough jump, like a big enough change, Mm -hmm. then I could see that being useful because you're like, oh, okay. But I see your point 
depending on the scale of your data, it would have to be a measurable, pretty impactful dip to notice. Yeah. And if you don't notice it, it doesn't mean there aren't important changes happening yeah. deeper, right? Yeah. So, so one component that we like to put in that works very well is like, what's the term? Movers and shakers? Yeah. Mm. I used to have something like that. Yeah. yeah. Tell me more. So, so what has radically changed beneath the surface? Right. If you look, go into most sites and you see, okay, the average bounce rate is basic, pretty much it might be going down, but there will be so massive fluctuations going on beneath that over time from different pages that respond differently and other campaigns that are good where people land better. And then the classic noise in most websites is saying, yeah, and then we ran a, a job campaign mm -hmm. and a thousand people looking for jobs came in and basically ruined all our data because we didn't filter them out. And we got a major spike. So looking below the averages, that is one of the learnings. So movers and shakers is really magical in, in being able to focus. That's such a great tip. A long time ago when I was crunching numbers around like display advertising, we had hundreds and hundreds of placements mm. and our stakeholders were always like, well, what are the ones that are interesting or doing the best? The best way yeah. we went about it was creating a calculation that looked at the baseline of volume because you know the smaller the volume you have mm -hmm. the more wildly fluctuating the calculations tend to be so we would start with a certain baseline of volume so that we weren't going and focusing on like very small potatoes non-movers mm -hmm. just yeah, shakers yeah. and then highlighting or floating to the top the ones that had experienced the greatest shift in whatever mm. time period that we looked at. Maybe it's a very rudimentary way because this was 12 years ago. <laughs> mm. oh, yeah, but we don't see them a lot in dashboards these days, mm. right? People still tend to aggregate the numbers and focus yeah. on the bigger numbers. I completely hear you. That That's really helpful. So really helping people dive deeper to see where things are moving and shaking. I yeah. love that. So, so a classic in, in that sense is also people like having on the dashboard, the what are our top 10 pages? Yeah, but your top ten pages are also always the same. They're going to be the right? same. <laughs> it's not interesting. No, the interesting thing are the new pages and what is going on further down the list. That's right. That's right, and more dynamic pages too. Yeah. blog posts or new videos or new products, things like that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It almost makes sense to have a page in a dashboard that's. All new stuff, like only focusing on things that are very new because you form these deep tire tracks, right? Where you're just driving the same mm. track every single day and nothing stands out anymore because it all looks the same, right? So yeah. alerting to change. Yeah. yeah. And that goes back to the question about why dashboards doesn't get used. The, the people are driving <laughs> these new tire tracks. So the energy we put into the dashboard when we make it the dashboard doesn't change over time. So it becomes a static component. It's like, you say, right. we get home blind. It's like that place on the wall that we should have painted because there used to be a picture and now it's ugly and we don't <laughs> notice anymore because we just live with it, right? That's right. Yeah, my friend Kevin Ertel, who was big in the e-commerce space, he did a talk once that spoke to this perfectly. He called it the tree stump theory, a tree stump effect, where if you brought a tree stump onto your coffee table, everyone would give you hell about it because it's so ugly yeah. and it doesn't belong there. But after a while, if you leave it there, even though it still doesn't belong there, it becomes a part of the background. Mm. Your pathways have adopted it. 
Yeah. So that's a great question. How can your dashboard create new pathways yeah. for your audience? One of the things that we found, and this is where you can turn your dashboards political, is basically by tell them what you can't tell them, adding blank spots to your dashboards. Okay. So, so one of the things is saying, we have customers who have had problems with people not tagging their campaigns. Yeah. So you had provisions not doing tagging. And normally you present and dashboard the data you have available. But it's not necessarily the data you would present if you had other data available. So if you had perfect campaign tracking, you would have a component on the dashboard where the return on the campaigns would be. Mm -hmm. And by putting in a blank spot, so the cases, the, the times we tried it, and then people will ask, so what's this about? Yeah, but if people were tracking the things that we were telling them, then I could tell you how each campaign was doing in relation to money. And then management's like, I want to know that. <laughs> right. This is the thing I really want to know. That's right. So by making them aware that there is more information available, by kind of teasing them with a gray spot on the dashboard, hmm. I guess it's dashboard seduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's bringing a bit of theatricality mm -hmm. and anticipation to a dashboard. You know, I, I just wrapped an episode with Andy Cotgrave of Tableau Evangelist fame. And mm. we were talking about the precarious downsides of when you present dashboards, especially during live meetings in lieu of a live presentation deck and how confusing and all over the place mm. it can be. I would love to understand because you're talking about actually incorporating some storytelling elements into the dashboard itself to create what's called a story loop. You're opening mm. a loop that people are now desperate to close yeah. with information. So do you present dashboards as the visual medium for live presentations or is it really geared more for like a self-driven consumption? I think in most cases, dashboard would be for more like a self-driven consumption. One of the most interesting dashboards we actually made was where it's really difficult to describe, but it's like, a multinational company, they had a lot of markets, but the dashboard in itself was actually living. So you had each the market as circles, and down in the center, you had a line, mm -hmm. which were, were they on track in relations to budget? Mm -hmm. And then this circle for the market would actually move, be placed in relation to this line. Mm -hmm. So you could see that, okay, Germany, or the US is behind. They're not on target. And then the numbers were, uh, well, actually, no numbers. One of the things that we've been trying to, if we want to do visual storytelling, then we try to remove as many numbers as possible. Mm, because yeah. numbers have a tendency to distract. <laughs> so we like numbers and with a lot of decimals, but when we have to present it to somebody else, sometimes we can tell a much better story if there's no numbers. Some of the most amazing efficient management dashboards we've made have been comprised of like four traffic lights vertically. Hmm. And then you have the, the goal saying, okay, are we on track to support the international sales mm -hmm. with digital, right? And then would be red, green, or orange. And if it's green, there would be nothing on the line. It would just mean that we are on track. You don't have to worry about this. Yep. Move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, move on. Focus on something that's a problem. Mm -hmm. All we could, there would be an orange one. Then there would be a comment. Why is this orange? And red, then it would have a management decision saying, we can see right now we're not going to hit the budget. So we need help. Either we have to 
decrease ambitions or increase budgets. And then suddenly management needed to make a decision in relation to this. But otherwise, it's back to the car. It's don't drive my car. Didn't let, I'm driving the car and you trust me to drive it. Right. Right. So you're practicing dashboard minimalism or essentialism. Like what is the absolute minimum they need to facilitate a decision they're empowered to make, right? Exactly. And nothing more. <laughs> so, so the more we can remove of noise and numbers in relations to making a decision, and it's really a lot inspired by Avinash has this triangle about how much time the different layers have to look at data. Mm, where we're okay. top management, they have no time at all. So how can we present something they can understand in no time? Mm. Traffic saying, are we green? And I think one of the reasons why we moved into this area was also, I have been attending too many meetings where we have been discussing things that were okay. Going through <laughs> right. a report where everything, yeah, that's Thanks fine. Thanks for joining okay. everyone. Um, yeah. Nothing happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. We can't go now. Everybody has to sit for an hour and hear that nothing happened and everything is fine. Same. Right. Okay, get a life already. You know, I'm publishing a book later this year, which I'm mentioning ad nauseum on my shows. Wow. And I speak to this around what I call the FYI meeting, which is mm -hmm. called Fake Your Insights. <laughs> this is the name I gave it, where we are expected to meet a cadence of reporting out with live meetings, live presentations, mm. which are best suited to some sort of cinematic storytelling arc because people are just sitting there, you know, listening to you, trying not to get bored. And mm. yet we come there just to inform them or update them by saying, hey guys, everything's the same because we meet every yeah. week and nothing changes because we don't do anything different, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? What's hard is balancing what do people want versus what do they actually need. It's such a deeply ingrained cultural habit to meet all the time and not e even with dashboards to still meet yeah. and update. I love that you brought that up because for me in my pie in the sky dream is that there are no purely FYI meetings mm. unless someone is new to yeah. the data and needs to be walked through and get familiar with it, but that is not an ongoing situation. And then all you're recommending at the end of it is, hey, we'll continue to monitor yeah. performance, <laughs> which is not Tune a recommendation. Tune in next week where we'll be back with the same update. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will happen. 100% yeah, exactly. guarantee. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. I think the extreme of it is actually what we've done in the sense that for us as a company, one of the things that we are locally famous for is that we have actually done our own digital transformation by looking with our data and working with it. So everybody at IH works 30 hours and only four days, but with full salary, mm -hmm. because we've been looking at our own data and looking at our processes and looking at these meetings where nothing happened really and saying, if we dive into our own business, what could we learn from ourselves so we can improve it? Yeah. So that's a talk for a brand new podcast, but, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> but, but it is interesting diving into your own data like that because mm. very often we're really good at reflecting on what other people are doing. It's like the, you see the stick in your friend's ear, but not the, the <laughs> I, I, can't, I don't know the American saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I understand. So how can practitioners help? get themselves through challenges like these? 
What do you think they can do? So it, it's circling back to the beginning, saying, understand what the business is trying to achieve. Yeah. Right? Yep. Actually taking time to understand what is the business I'm working for actually doing. And right. <laughs> what do we right, sell? Where? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really? <laughs> we did that. As yeah. a, because very often with data and visualizations, we get so detached from the business that it's just, again, the numbers. Yeah. So going the rounds, looking at the products and the plans and talking to the customers and, and saying, okay, these numbers we see on the website actually reflects people who want to buy our product or complain that it sucks or something, but they're, they're there for some reason, right? Yeah. So having that understanding and saying, how can I help them get a better day? Because that's right. part of my job. Oh, I love that. How yeah. can we make their day better? Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I used to love downloading what I used to call the wall, this like massive wall of data and start crunching. But eventually it was not until we started using voice of customer data and I was Ooh. reading the actual experiences of people on yeah. the site and what they had expected from us and how much they were struggling, those digits started to change to little faces. Mm. And that I felt put me in a much more empathetic place to connect with them and allowing that also to guide the analysis yeah. too. Yeah, very good. All right, so we've arrived at a segment called The Upgrade, which is a tool, a resource, a video, a book, something that you love using in your work, something that really changed your practice or is making your day better that you think that the listeners would love. So I'd love to hear what you've got. Okay, so I'll actually give you something that follows up on your last point. Okay. One of the things that we found is sometimes we have a tendency to focus too much on the users who perform the action that we want because we can kind of see, mm. yeah, then we can upload that and look for similar audiences and then right. do all that. But we actually missed the point by letting the users go that abandons us in the last moment or decides not to purchase uh. and, and all this. So combining that data and integrating it with Google surveys mm. and actually do a survey afterwards on the ones that got away. Yep. Yep. Saying, so going in and, and finding out, were they in the market for the product? Did they buy it somewhere else? And it's not about asking them specifically, yo, we know you were at our website. Why didn't you buy? But it's kind of saying, <laughs> have you been in the market for this type of product lately? And then telling the story that way around. Mm -hmm. Because the insights that you will get is you will get exactly what you were talking about. You will get the smiley faces or the reason why you failed or the reason why the process broke at that point. Because that has probably been... I think from a storytelling in analytics and data, one of the key challenges, because then you're like, yeah, and here, maybe they lived heavily ever after, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> like, I, I can't really say for sure either they hated us or they really loved us, mm -hmm. but I kind of lost track at this point. <laughs> so, so going in and, and actually being able to get that punctuation mark at the end of the story saying, how are we doing? What are people saying? Why are we not converting more? I think that is so powerful. There is such a focus on post-purchase surveys. And I think the nature yeah. of human beings are, we are inherently helpful to a degree, but especially if we have sacrificed our time because we expected to be able to get something from somewhere and we got as far as the shopping cart mm -hmm. and then we 
abandoned for some reason, there's probably something inside us that wants to let people know like, hey, I gave my time. It might as well be worth something. So here's why and make it better for the next time. And you never know how you can use that to turn around. That's really helpful. Yeah. So I think that that's a valuable point saying because so we can get the surveys from the people who end up buying, but it's really normally really difficult to get. <laughs> and you the, won the with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's the ones. So so that will give us what's the survivor bias, right? Mm, okay. so, so we get hit by this survivor bias where we only look at the ones who make it through. Oh, I see. Interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. I'm familiar with many biases, but I haven't come face to face with that one specifically. Survivor bias is coined by a British mathematician that during the Second World War, he got called in because there was a lot of bombers that came back and a lot that didn't. And all the ones that came back had a lot of bullet holes and they were asking him where to put the reinforcements. Mm -hmm. And the team that had gone before him had gone in and they had put reinforcements where all the bullet holes were. And he was like, well, the challenge is the ones where there's all the places where there's no bullet holes. (laughs) That's actually why they fall down. So by only looking at the ones that come back, we're actually missing half the data set. Of course. The ones that didn't come back have the bullet holes that count. The ones that didn't convert, saying these are actually the people that holds the answer to why they didn't convert. Mm -hmm. Sure, we can go out and try to get more people of the ones that converted, but the big market opportunity actually goes in finding the ones that- Almost. That failed. That almost made it, yeah. That we shut down during the way because our something on our side sucked or something was wrong. Right. Wow, that is incredibly insightful, Stain. I think that was worth the whole episode, yeah. even though this was packed with stuff. So we've arrived at our final question. I want you to think very hard here and imagine this very plausible scenario. So they're about to announce the winner of the Slingshot Global Startup Competition, which you've entered, when suddenly you trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. Way back. (laughs) So if you can remember, what are you presenting about? But more importantly, what advice would you give to that person? So... I've did a lot of mistakes along the way after that, but my first presentation, so I remember it really well because at that point I had told all my colleagues I couldn't sell a cap to a man that was cold around the ears mm-hmm. or a hat. And a colleague of mine had said, well, there were some people coming by the office in a couple of months if I could come and present them what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, sure. Didn't sound like a big deal. And the days were coming closer and like two, three days before I go to him and say, okay, they should be coming in a couple of days. What, what is this? Yeah, but it's a group of 10 graders with the motivational problems, and they're going to be there for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So entertain them. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah, that was nasty. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I spent a lot of time, and I actually I focused on what we had in common. Mm. So what could I use as storytelling elements? And I built a, the entire session around things I knew that we would be sharing, which was advertisers, television commercials. Mm -hmm. So I used 50 different television commercials as reference points during this presentation. And then the teacher afterwards came back and said they loved it. It was one of the best things they had because they could relate to it. And that was what has helped me step forward because it's kind of, that was my, was that a New York, New York moment? If I could make it there, I'll make it anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 
the Broadway moment. Wow. So my advice to myself was go do it and maybe find more commercials, but you are on track. So that was the, my defining moment on the first real presentation where I feel I was standing on the edge. But when I went into that room, I was scared <laughs> shitless. <laughs> Oh, you know, it's amazing. That is a very challenging early experience for something mm. like that. But you intuited to do something that is explained as one of the top strategies that you can have with presenting, which is finding common ground mm. with your audience and helping them relate to you as one of them, right? And build yeah. that bridge if they don't know you from Adam, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, that is an amazing story and really fantastic advice. I'm glad it turned out so well. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, our time has run out. This was such an enjoyable conversation. So please tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. Yeah, so so I'm kind of old school. So if you want to keep up with me, I'm a LinkedIn boy. So okay. that is where I do most of my communication. So So join me on LinkedIn and follow me there. I try to be equally entertaining all the time and provide <laughs> insights. So uh that is where I make my magic happen. Fantastic. So we'll make sure that a link to your LinkedIn profile so people can connect. And all of the resources we talked about today will be available on the show notes page for this episode. So Stane, I want to thank you so much. This episode was a long time in the making. We finally oh. did it. And it was such an insightful conversation. And I really hope our paths cross again. Perfect. Thank you. And I enjoyed myself immensely too. So thanks for having me. Sure thing. All right. I hope that episode planted some new seeds of thinking about how to build the best dashboards for informing quick business decisions and inspiring deeper analytical dives. To catch all the links for all of the resources, events, everything mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 074. I would love if you could leave me a comment or suggestions because I want to hear about the challenges you face when presenting information, doing data viz quickly and efficiently, or anything else you'd like to talk about here. And I always invite you to find me on LinkedIn, Leah Pika, and send me a note that you're a listener. I respond to every single one. And I'll leave you with today's presentation inspiration by Hilary Mason, data scientist and founder of Fast Forward Labs. And that is, the core advantage of data is that it tells you something about the world that you didn't know before. My take? This quote exemplifies the impact of an insight done right, creating that light bulb eureka moment. While well-built business dashboards, they may not turn the light bulb on and explain the how or why if something happened, but they are the light switch that points us to where the insight lives. That's it for today. Enjoy the start of spring and namaste. Namaste.